Sweet. Okay, so we are in Judges chapter 15. We are diving into the story of Samson and picking up this account. Blake left us off last week, taking us through the account and the context, everything that was happening around uh, the birth of Samson. I'll just remind you that Israel was in the bottom of this repetitious cycle that we've seen over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges, uh, where they you know, rebel against the Lord. And this time, it is the Philistines that God has sent to oppress his own people, to lead them towards a place of repentance, to discipline his children. And uh, Judges chapter 13 tells us that they were oppressed by the Philistines for a period of 40 years. And so in this usual pattern of oppression, what would happen is this, is enemy Israel would rebel against the Lord, sin against the Lord, the Lord would send a foreign power to oppress them and to just be heavy-handed with his people. And under that heavy hand of oppression, they would turn their hearts to the Lord, repent, and God would raise up a deliverer. We call them judges, a savior who would come and lead the children of Israel uh, to freedom and to peace in the Lord. And so there's been this successive cycle happening and happening, wash, rinse, repeat throughout the book of Judges. And each time we've seen this, as the children of Israel rebel, they dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Each time the rebellion is worse than the previous one. And we've actually come to this final judge in this book, Samson, and the hole is deeper than ever. In fact, what's so fascinating about this is that as you read the story of Samson, what you see is that there is actually no repentance from the people of God. I want you to point that out to you and for you to catch that. And maybe you even want to mark that somewhere in the margins of your Bible. They have not called on the Lord. They have not repented, even though they've been under the thumb of the Philistines for 40 years. And so this deliverance where God uses Samson is unique because it is solely and entirely initiated by the Lord. And as we're going to see, God is going to raise up this man who is a, a savior, a deliverer, a judge, and Samson is far from a perfect dude. Man, we're going to find that out quick about this guy. I mean, this guy has more character flaws than any judge throughout the book, okay? He's violent, he's impulsive, he's emotionally unstable, he's relationally immature, he's selfish, he's a sex addict, he's got a temper. He's full of pride, and yet the Spirit of God empowers this guy to battle against the Philistines. So let's check it out. Verse 1, we're going to do chapters 14 and 15 this morning. It says this, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, if you got a pen in your hand, I want you to mark verse 4. Because verse 4 is the key to this whole chapter and where everything is going to go. Without verse 4, this, this story would be extremely confusing. But it tells us what the Lord is doing. That God is at work in the midst of what is happening. You know, chapter 13 ends by telling us that the Spirit of God was beginning to stir Samson. His parents knew from the angel of the Lord, that this man was called to be a deliverer. He was called to serve the Lord. And so imagine this, that, that Samson grew up with this knowledge. He was destined for conflict with the Philistines. Now this town called Timnah, where he goes and finds his future Philistine wife, was about five kilometers from where Samson lived in the, the community of Zorah. It was part of, Timnah was part of the land that was actually allotted to Samson's tribe, the tribe of Dan. And Dan had failed to occupy it. The Philistines lived there. And so I imagine in my mind that Samson's parents probably look forward to the day 
for many years, raising their son, knowing that one day, believing that one day their son was going to lead the armies of Israel to defeat the enemies of God's people, and Timnah would once again finally belong to the tribe of Dan. But that's not how things are going to go down, unfortunately. Instead, instead of leading the armies of Israel against Timnah, what do we read Samson does? He goes down there and he, he sees a, a beautiful woman, a Philistine woman, and he returns home and says to his parents, get her for me as my wife. Now, we know this about Samson. I mean, Samson's known for his strength. He's a he-man, but he's been called a, a man, a he-man with a problem, a she, with the she's, the she-women. Now, get this Philistine girl for my wife. Now, intermarriage with foreigners was prohibited in the law of Moses, prohibited by God. She was of the uncircumcised Philistines, outside of God's covenant people. That's what that means. Uh, she was part of the idol-worshipping Philistine people. But Samson says this, and it's, again, this is something that's worth marking in this text because it gives us a picture. He says this, she is right in my eyes. His parents said, what are you, his parents said, what are you doing? He said, no, no, she's right in my eyes. And that's exactly what is, was increasingly happening under the times of the judges with the people of God. The Bible tells us, that in the judges, the time of the judges, every man was doing as he saw fit with his own eyes. Whatever was right in their own eyes. Rather than living as God's covenant people, they were increasingly becoming like the nations and the people groups around them. And they were doing as they saw fit. Now, the people of God were told not to marry the people around them. Not to marry the people around them. Of course, the New Testament uh, teaches us the same thing. It says this, that, that, that followers of Christ Jesus are not to enter into unequally yoked marriages with those who don't know the Lord. Because the Bible basically teaches this, that that will force you to be in this relationship of conflict where, where Jesus will not be able to be central to everything in your life. If you're unmarried and you're thinking about getting married, that's the danger. You marry someone who doesn't know Jesus, then Jesus is not going to be at the center of your home. And so the scripture says that an unmarried man or an unmarried woman needs to look for a follower of Jesus when they get married. Otherwise, there's going to be compromises. It's going to, it's going to have to happen everywhere in life if you want to follow Jesus and yet be unequally yoked to someone who doesn't know the Lord. It's really a lesser good. In fact, I would go so far as to call it a form of idolatry. That's exactly what it is, where you put someone else in place of the spot where Jesus deserves to have. So Samson here, in picking this Philistine woman to be his wife, was acting contrary to God's word. And we already know that, that we're already beginning to see that this guy is not going to be the judge that we were hoping for. You know, I think back to when we started in the book of Judges, the very first judge in, the book, in this book of Judges, his name was Othniel. And when God raised him up, the text tells us very specifically that he took uh, Aksa, the daughter of Caleb, to be his wife. He, he found a godly wife from a godly household, and he led the children of Israel. Now, we get to the end of the book. We get to the last judge here, and what do we see? This is a decline that we want to recognize. He's taking a wife from amongst the uncircumcised Philistines who do not know the Lord. And so it's amazing to just look at Samson and to recognize that God raises him up, even though the nation has not called on him. I mentioned that earlier. There's no groaning to the Lord. There's no repentance. We're going to see later on in this text that there isn't even resistance against the Philistines. It's like they've just entered into this relationship with the enemy. And I would say this, the people are spiritually sleeping. They're unconscious. No resistance. Seemingly no understanding that they shouldn't be mixing with this foreign people. No understanding that they had a national culture of their own, one that was based on serving the Lord and and they were not to live in these friendly relationships with the 
the enemies of God. So this whole scene is not good. That's what I want you to catch just as we lay some groundwork here. And I, and I think, you know, you can take this and bring it right to today and say this to the church. You know, we should be very cautious about, you know, harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. The Apostle John said this, if you love the world, the love of God is not in you. And for the church, you know, where there is no conflict with the world, it's because we have just allowed the world to move in and to take over. There needs to be conflict for the follower of Jesus with the culture of this world, the patterns of this world. And as you think about this story, you know, the only reason Israel isn't completely assimilated into the people around them at this point is because God is going to stop it from happening. Nobody's repenting. Nobody's turning in faith to him. And he's going to take and he's going to use a very imperfect man to try and turn things around. And so we read here about this scene of family tension where the, the writer tells us that Manoah and his wife were not happy with their son's choice. But we also read this, verse 4, that key verse, that in this, the Lord was seeking for an occasion to confront the Philistines. So again, that, that verse is the, the key to understanding this whole chapter. Now, it's not justifying Samson's behavior. I need to point that out. It's not saying what he does is right, but it does tell us this, that God is sovereignly in control in the midst of everything that is going on. And he's going to use a stubborn man. He's going to use a willful character, and God is going to work in the midst of it to bring about his own purposes. And so the scene is this, you know, the Philistines and the Israelites, life is so comfortable between them, so interlocked, so interwoven. There's so much harmonious peace that the Lord is going to actually have to use a man in his weakness to intervene, to try and pry his people away from the world. Amazing. He uses this man and his flaws. You know, God does that. God uses men and their flaws. I even think, you know, so much so that the, the story of the cross, if we go right to the New Testament, we read the ultimate example of that, that men by their wicked choices chose to crucify the son of God. But Jesus used that and he redeemed the world by his blood. And so our key verse, again, let me read it to you. Verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Let's read verse 5. It says this. It'll be on your screen. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. It's an amazing story. Can you imagine tearing a lion apart with your bare hands? It's incredible. It's amazing. What's more amazing to me is that this guy was on a journey, really, in his flesh, against how God would direct. And yet the Spirit of God met him in the midst of what he was up to. And we've already identified that verse 4 is the key to understanding the passage, realizing that, that in the midst of this, God is at work. As he, is, as he has this confrontation with the line, the Lord is at work. And God was making Samson aware, I would say, of the strength that he would be given to take his stand against the Philistines. He's learning that he could be totally dependent on the Lord for strength. He could rely on the Lord in the hour of need. You know, it's interesting that prior to this, we have no sense that like, Samson is this he-man. Nothing tells us that in this story until he has the confrontation with the lion. You know, if you look at, I don't know, the artistic impressions, maybe from your childhood of Samson, what do you see? This muscle-bound freak, right? The gorilla from the gym, I don't know what you want to call them, iron pump and freak of nature, but we actually don't get that picture in this story. It's amazing. We need to stop and recognize this. Samson's average. He didn't have a physique like me, 
No, just kidding. Okay? Uh, he's a freak of nature, not a freak of nature, that is. And no one expected him to perform these feats of strength. This was totally the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I mean, next week when we get to the story of Delilah, Delilah's actually going to ask, what's the source of your strength? Because there's nothing. He's not in the weight room pumping iron. Everyone is shocked that this guy can do the feats of strength that he did. He's no, he's no physical specimen. It's a mystery. So the text tells us where does this strength come from that he has? Well, the Spirit of the Lord would rush upon him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and though he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces. This is great, because, you know, for you and, and for me, our ability to serve the Lord, it relies on the same principle. We, we are dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit, and without him, we can do nothing. There's no strength in us. In fact, the Scripture tells us that God likes to use weak things. Foolish things, that he wants to confound the strong, that he wants to bring shame to those who are wise in their own eyes, that that's what God wants to do. It's about the power of the Spirit at work in a man or a woman. This is the story of Samson. Now, verse 8 says this, after some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, if we were to go back one chapter to chapter 13, or if you were with us last week, you would know this, that Samson was, his parents were instructed to raise him as a Nazarite. It was a, it was a lifestyle of consecration and dedication to the Lord that was symbolized by some practices in his life. He was raised with these practices. One was this, a famous one that we know well. He didn't cut his hair. His hair was not to be cut. Another would be this, that he was not to drink anything from the fruit of the vine. And a third one would be this, that Samson was not to have contact with Dead bodies, because he was dedicated to the Lord. God, life comes from the Lord. He wasn't, have to, wasn't to have contact with dead. So this Nazarite lifestyle, what he was called to and dedicated to, was compromised here. Handling a dead animal. And, and he involves his parents in it. They didn't even know what was going on, but he, he gave them honey from this dead animal. Now, the details about the lion, the bees, the honey... What it's doing for us is this, is it's providing us some context for where this story is going to go. Background information for what's going to happen at the wedding feast. And so let's read about the wedding feast. And I want to tell you, just, just before we do, verse 10, I want to tell you that the, the feast can actually more literally be translated a drinking party. This was, this was a stag, okay? Get that picture in your head, a stag. And it's not an People of God, Israelite stag. It's a Philistine stag. And like a stag party, Samson needs to have friends there, but he doesn't bring any friends with him. He doesn't bring any Israelite friends. So the Philistines provide him 30 men to hang out with him during this stag. Okay, let's, let's read what happens. Verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so young men used to do. And, and as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. Verse 15. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. 
Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Sounds like good friends, eh? Verse 16, and Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Wow. Okay. So the riddle, you know, I just, let's talk about that before we talk about the heifer. Okay. And then I just have a wide word, wise word of wisdom for the men out there. Okay. Okay. The, the riddle was a form of entertainment at this, you know, wedding. It's not, they're not, they're not sitting in front of the PS4 watching movies. So there's a riddle provided and it's entertainment for the wedding feast. And if they can't crack it, then, you know, they're going to have to pay up. It's a bit of gambling going on here. And if they can crack it, then Samson's going to pay up. And so there's a bit of an opportunity here because they shouldn't get this. Samson's showing his wit over the Philistines and he's going to accumulate some wealth. So what do they do? Well, four days in, they, they threaten the, the life of his future wife and her family. They're not, they're not actually married yet, okay? It's like a betrothal situation. So she's pledged to be married to him. And so after the threat, she spends the week. This is miserable, right? This is a party. They're supposed to be celebrating their future wedding. And instead, she's crying all week long. And finally, Samson cracks. And the answer to the riddle is revealed. And Samson's not exactly complimentary about his future wife, calling her a heifer. Um, I don't think that would go over very well in your house. So just, you know, guys, set that out of your vocabulary. Don't bring that one up, okay? He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. Heifers are cows, by the way, that have not born a calf yet, okay? So he's simply saying this. You wouldn't have found out the answer if you hadn't broken the rules of our little game here. So verse 19, it says this. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. This is the key to Samson's life. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Wow, again, crazy. You know, friends like that who needs enemies, right? Wow, you know, the author says this, that the Spirit of God rushed upon Samson, and the Lord led him to do this. He goes to Ashkelon, he kills 30 men, he takes their garments, and he can make payment on the riddle and its answer. And the Spirit of the Lord seizes him, fills him, and he punishes the Philistines. Now you say, well, what's this all about? You know, how's he, why would he act like this? Look at, we got to remember this. He's a judge. He's called to be a savior, to be a deliverer of God's people. And so as a man who is put in the position of judge for the Lord and for God's people, as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, he is bringing a judicial uh, sentence of punishment against the oppressors of God's people. So we have to read this story that way. This is a judicial sentence from heaven being brought out. Now, now we don't understand it all. It's not the prettiest, easiest story. But they answered the riddle, and 30 men paid with their lives. Now, you know, you, you read this, and we've been calling the book of Judges, you know, Jesus and the book of Judges, and you go, where's the picture of Jesus and Samson? And I say, I don't know. Good question. Where is the picture of Jesus in, in Samson? How would Jesus fit? And I just got to say this, this, this man has to serve as just a total contrast to what we should expect in a Savior and a Deliverer, except for the fact that he was filled with the Spirit 
of God. You know, while the spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson, it would be for a limited time, for, for a limited purpose, he would be strengthened. He would do these feats of strength. But when we turn to the New Testament and we look at Jesus, what we see is this. When the Spirit of God came on, on Jesus, the Spirit stayed. The Spirit rested on him. We, we read about that in the Gospels, that the, the Spirit descended in the form of a dove and rested on Jesus. And so, you know, I just remind you, we're, we're New Testament followers of God. We're followers of Jesus. Samson's not our example. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example. We follow him in the, in the footsteps of someone who is the direct opposite of this man, Samson. And, and Jesus does this for us as we follow him. He sends his spirit to fill us and to empower us and to strengthen us. Now, as I think about this story, and really the whole story of, of Samson, really this story kind of illustrates, you know, what happens when God's people try to mix with the world around them, when they mix in marriages and mix in political alliances and get involved with pagan people and go to sleep and are spiritually unconscious. Israel has slid into this relationship that would be, I would call it syncretism. It's the mixing of the worship of God with pagan deities and idolatry. And one of the lessons that we need to catch from this applies to us as followers of Jesus is this, is that God wants to break those alliances. He wants to sever them. He wants there to be a divorce, so to speak, between our our alliances with this world. We're to serve him, to serve Jesus and his kingdom. And Samson's superhuman strength is is provided so that he can lead Israel basically on a separation, like on a spiritual divorce, so that their mixed marriage with the Philistine peoples would come to an end and they would serve the Lord and serve him only. And we got to watch that as a church. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. Let's read on. Verse chapter 15. It says this, verse 1. After some days... At the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her. Utter, utter, get that? That's a heifer joke right there. Thought you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. This guy's crazy, man. And he turned them tail to tail and he put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stack grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. So the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Man, it's such a crazy culture back in these days, right? Verse 7, and Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh. That means like top to bottom. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and he stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Interesting, the text doesn't tell us what that meant when he struck them hip and thigh. Those details are kept back. But he goes and he hides out. Now again, how do we understand this, this whole story? We've got to, we've got to go back to chapter 14, verse 4, that tells us all of this was from the Lord. The Lord was seeking to confront the Philistines and looking for an occasion to do so. And so as we look at Samson, this man, what I would say is this, we have to recognize that Samson was being used in spite of his failings, not not because of his faithfulness. He's not a picture of faithfulness when it comes to serving God. He's a picture of a man with a lot of failings, and God used him in spite of his failings. It's amazing. Like, if you've kicked around 
Christian circles, over any period of time, you, you will notice that there is actually a pattern. Like often God uses men who have great human failings. I mean, you could do a quick internet search this afternoon and you'd like, you'd just find lists of spiritual leaders who've even failed this past year. You can look throughout history. I, I, I go back to the, the history of our own church movement, Calvary Chapel, and there's a character in our, in our history, and an evangelist by the name of Lonnie Frisbee, and you look at his story and you go, how did God use that guy? I don't know. But he led many thousands to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and it happens throughout history, and this is another picture of that. This is not a man who's a picture of spiritual integrity or character. He's a man with failings. But God is faithful, and he uses him. And Samson captures these 300 foxes. Don't ask me how he did that. I have no idea. Ties their tails together, puts a torch in the middle, lights it, sends them amongst the grain that's been harvested, and the devastation is like massive. Wheat fields are destroyed. Their crops are destroyed. Everything they already harvested is destroyed. Their olive groves destroyed, burnt. These are like important crops to like agricultural people, ancient people who depended on these things. You imagine, it's like this. It's like someone going in our town and burning down IGA and super value and IGA, and Clayton's, and Independence. It's like, it's like that happening. What would we do? We'd freak out. It's what he did. Burnt down the grocery stores, verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah, and they made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 of the men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. They said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes, and they brought him up from the rock. When he came down to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord, there it is again, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. This is awesome. Verse 15, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put, and put out his hand and took it, and he struck, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Wow, this guy. I do like this story, I got to say. Like, I do like it. As confusing as it is, it's a very cool story. So here's Samson, he's camping out. Hiding out in a cave, I imagine that he knows the Philistines are going to come looking for him because he's burnt down all their grocery stores. And rather than, you know, going to his hometowns and his hometown getting attacked, he goes independently, finds a place to, to hide in the hills and the caves. And the Philistines pull together this army and they come and encamp against the tribe of Judah, which is interesting. Because this is not Samson's tribe. Remember, Samson is from the tribe of Dan. He's from the tribe of Dan. But the Philistines encamp against the tribe of Judah, and Judah is not loyal to Samson. This is not Samson's tribe. And Judah, we find out this, Judah just wants to have peace with the enemy. Come on, man. Don't upset the apple cart. And I think that this is really, really important to this story. You know, the men of Judah are actually like prepared to betray a brother. They're prepared to play the traitor with a man whom God is using to defend them. They just want a quiet life, you know, like, Samson, don't you know the Philistines rule over us? What have you done? Leave them alone, man. 
Don't poke the bear. Don't poke them in the eye. And as we read this, I got to point this out. Like, this is tragic, isn't it? Like, if you stop and think about this, the people of God who believe, who are supposed to believe that their God, the Lord, Yahweh, rules over the nations of men, they're content to live in the land that God has given them and to be like, like an insecure tenant, like to not have things locked down and to be in control, to be subject to a foreign power. They're content to be devoted to the worship of pagan gods and syncretism and the whole thing. And it just made me wonder, like, is that what the church is doing today? Maybe it's not unlike the church today. You know, there's so many church leaders saying, just don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat with people that don't believe in Jesus. Don't don't rock the boat with governments and authorities that deny his nature and his person, his deity. Don't rock the boat with those who deny his rule over the nations. You know, don't rock rock the boat with those who won't acknowledge the atoning work of Christ Jesus for the sins of mankind on the cross. Don't rock the boat with those who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead and Christ being the firstborn of the dead. Don't rock the boat with those who won't acknowledge that he ascended into heaven and that he's coming back, coming again for his church and coming for this world. Don't rock the boat with people who won't do such things and at the same time, you know, will affirm Every sinful and rebellious practice, immorality, abortion, euthanasia. I was so disturbed this week because I saw just a headline. I didn't even read the article, but I saw somewhere this week that our province, the provincial government of British Columbia, denied certification to a particular old folks home because they refuse to practice euthanasia with their clients. Our premier denied them their certification because they won't put a needle in the arms of seniors and kill them, murder them. There's actually a term that was used for Nazis who did such thing. They were called desk murderers. Because they didn't do it themselves. They just made the rules that allowed such things to happen. We have to turn to the Lord, church. As a nation, we need to turn to God in a spirit of repentance. We should be weary of reading the story of these judges and Israel's lack of repentance in the bottom of the cycle. It's in this story that the Lord was at work to divorce his people from their relationship with the world. To divorce his people from their relationship with a pagan nation that was at enmity with God. That's my nation. It's pagan. And it's at enmity with the Lord. And I read about Samson and I look at him and he's like no picture of faithfulness. He's no picture of faithfulness, but you know what God did? God used him to confront. God used him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. May the Spirit of God rush upon our church. May he rush upon us. May he use us. If we need to be those who confront the practices of this world, May we, the church, be the pillar of truth, the pillar and buttress of truth. Did you know that in the ancient world, technologically, in terms of warfare, there was no one more advanced than the Philistines? At that time, they were better prepared for warfare than any nation that they ever faced with. They they ever faced. They had weaponry and tactics, and they were a nation of war. But what happens? The Spirit of God comes on Samson, and with a jawbone, 
He takes down a thousand men from the most technologically advanced warfare prepared nation in the world. You know, earlier in the book of Judges, there was a, there was a judge by the name of Shamgar. He used an ox goad. Remember him with an ox goad? He killed 600 Philistines. With a donkey's jawbone, <clears throat> Samson killed a thousand Philistines. With a sling and a stone, David killed one of their Philistine giant champions. An ox code, a jawbone, and a sling. See, this is, these are pictures that, that God has repeat. He repeats them in Scripture against the Philistines. This is God using foolish things to defeat and to confound the wise. Using whatever is in the hand of the one who serves him to take on greater things than themselves. But because the Spirit of God has empowered them, they do valiant things for the kingdom. Valiant things for the name of the Lord. Valiant things for the people of God. Look at verse 16. It says this. And Samson said, boy, this guy's like a rapper. He's not, he's not only like a big muscle-bound man. No, I don't know what he is. He likes his riddles. Okay. Verse 16, and Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and he called the place, or sorry, and that place was called Ramath Lihi. Ramath Lihi, that means jawbone hill. <laughs> good name. Sounds like, you know, good place to put a new subdivision, jawbone hill. Okay, verse 18. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. Verse 20. And he judged Israel's, Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. You know what's interesting is you come to the end of that chapter there. It's like the first time three chapters into the story of Samson. It's the first time that we hear Samson express any sense of his own personal weakness. First time we hear him express any sense for his need of the Spirit of God to help him. Any, any sense for the Lord to revive him and to strengthen him. He, he says this in his weakness, sensing his weakness. Lord, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? You know, you think about Samson. It's like to this point, it's like the guy's just motivated by revenge. But here... We see him recognize that this victory is not his. What's happened? He, it's like he starts to recognize this is not him who's done this. The Lord has been at work in him. And he finally recognizes that he has to be as dependent upon the Lord in the midst of the battle and after the battle. Dependent on the Lord after the victory and in the victory. And this is why Samson is actually counted amongst the great heroes of faith. Like you read his story, you wouldn't think that, but he's counted. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the great hall of faith, he's recognized for his faith, recognized that he had cast his life entirely upon the mercies of God. Makes me think of what Jesus said. He told his disciples this. He said to them, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. And I look at Samson, I think this man, God was gracious. God was very gracious to, to Samson, meeting Samson's need by providing for him, giving him water, sustaining his life, refreshing him, restoring him. And we recognize this as we read the story of Samson. We recognize he's God's man for the hour. As challenging as that might be, as flawed as he might be. As driven by his flesh as, as he is at times, as irresponsible as he is at times, 
He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. God's man for the hour, for the hour. Now, I want to give you just three applications, okay? Three applications as we think of these stories of Samson. Maybe you got a pen. Maybe you want to write them down. The first one is this. I take great heart in this one. It's this. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you. And I don't know who's watching this morning. Maybe you're clicking on and joining us for the first time. I just want to tell you this. You don't have to be perfect for God. God loves you. God's heart beats towards you. And yeah, as Christians, we hold the standard of character and the integrity. We want to keep it right up as high as we possibly can. I'm not looking to lower the bar as I say this. Don't, don't ever think that. Not looking to lower the bar. But you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. And you know, what's interesting when you think about that is that you, you, you can't predict what God will do or who he'll use or how he'll use you. And we really have this wrong way of thinking that we think we have to be good enough for God to use us. Look at that's totally anti-gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is not that you have to be good enough to be saved or good enough to be used in the kingdom of God. The, the gospel is this, is that God is good enough, that Jesus is enough, that the cross is enough, that his blood is enough to save you from your sin and his character and his grace is more than enough. And so just recognize this about Samson. Samson was used in spite of his failings, in spite of them. And again, that's not, not lowering the bar here. I don't want to lower the bar. But Samson was used in spite of his failings and not because of his faithfulness. So you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. Second thing is this. Remember what Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. We know that about Samson. He's no physical specimen in and of himself. It was when the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him that God could use him. And I want to encourage you. Call on the Lord in every and any circumstance. When you're in victory, when you're in the middle of the battle, call on the Lord. When you're thirsty and tired after the battle, call on the Lord. Call on him. Make it the practice of your life. In the hour of need, be totally dependent on the Lord for his strength. Say, God, I'm done. Right now, I am done. Unless you work. That should just be the posture of your life because without him, you can do nothing. And the third thing I guess I would just say is this, kind of similar, but you know, in your need, cry out to the Lord. That's what Samson did. You know, that's what faith is. That's why Samson's counted amongst the whole of faith, not because of his strength, because when he was actually in need, he recognized that he should call out to the Lord. And you know what God didn't do? God did not lecture Samson on his behavior. It's incredible to me. Well, Samson, wasn't for that Philistine girl and this and that. And, you know, you got a big list of bad stuff in your life. So, you know, go get that in order and then call on me. God didn't say that to him. God never did that. He called on the Lord. And you know what the Lord did? The Lord opened a fountain and refreshed him. Gave him water to drink. His spirit was revived. I just want to tell you, if you'll call on the Lord, you'll call on the Lord. The Lord will open a fountain. You know the fountain? You know the fountain we drink from? It's Jesus. Jesus says, if you'll come to me, if you'll come to me, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. I will refresh you. I will sustain you. I will give life to you. If you'll come to me, I, I would just encourage you. Go to Jesus. In your need, cry out to God. The Lord will refresh you, and he'll strengthen you, and he won't present you a list of all the bad stuff you've done. He'll just come and meet you. Then you know what happens? You know what happens? You start to want to set the bad, bad stuff aside. That's the power of grace. It's the power of God's love. It's not legalism by which we're set free from sin. It's grace by which we're set free from sin. 
experiencing the goodness of God, then you just get to this point where you're like, God, I just don't want to sin against you in that way. I, I don't want to sin against the living water. I don't want to sin against Jesus. Because you meet me always in my hour of need. Samson, great story. We'll, we'll pick it up again next week. Let's pray. The worship team is going to come, and uh, they're going to lead us in a song, give you a chance to just get slightly organized if you need to, and then uh, we're going to have communion together, and then we'll dismiss you. And the 11 o'clock folks are going to be joining in just in time for communion. They're going to be like, what's going on? Okay, so let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you that you use weak people. Man, Jesus, we just thank you. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to have our stuff all in order. All we got to do is cry out to you. All we got to do is say, Lord, I need you. I need you, Jesus. Save me. I need your spirit. Fill me. And God, you're faithful. You're so faithful. You're so faithful. Lord, would you, would you just work in our hearts and our lives to divorce us of the love of this world? To bring a separation, God, where we're, we're mixing like Israel did with the Philistines, Lord, and we're just totally unaware, maybe blind to it. Would you bring clarity? Would you help us, Jesus, to live for you and you alone? God, I thank you that you're so patient with us in our failings. Thank you, God, that even in the midst of our failings, your spirit will come to us and strengthen us. Even in the midst of our failings, you never leave us or forsake us. So Jesus, maybe this morning right now, we need to repent. God, maybe your spirit's bringing something to mind. Lord, would you please forgive us of that sin? God, we repent of it. This morning, we turn from it. We turn in faith in you, Jesus. You're our salvation. And we love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.